Chapter Thirteen of the Courage of Marge O'Doon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Courage of Marge O'Doon by James Oliver Curwood. Chapter Thirteen. For two or three minutes after Father Roland had disappeared in the forest, David and Mukoki stood without moving. Amazed and a little stunned by the change they had seen in the missioner's ghastly face, and perplexed by the strangeness of his voice and the unsteadiness of his walk as he had gone away from them, they looked expectantly for him to return out of the shadows of the timber. His last words had come to them with metallic hardness, and their effect, in a way, had been rather appalling. There will be no prayer. Why? The question was in Mukoki's gleaming, narrow eyes as he faced the dark spruce, and it was on David's lips as he turned at last to look at the Cree. There was to be no prayer for Tavish. David felt himself shuddering, when suddenly, breaking the silence like a sinister cackle, an exultant exclamation burst from the Indian, as though, all at once, understanding had dawned upon him. He pointed to the dead man, his eyes widening. Tavish, he great devil, he said. Mon père make no prayer. May you. And he grinned in triumph. For had he not, during all these months, told his master that Tavish was a devil, and that his cabin was filled with little devils? Mayu, he cried again, louder than before, a devil. And with a swift, vengeful movement he sprang to Tavish, caught him by his moccasined feet, and to David's horror, flung him fiercely into the shallow grave. A devil! he croaked again, and like a madman began throwing in the frozen earth upon the body. David turned away, sickened by the thud of the body and the fall of the clods on its upturned face. For he had caught a last unpleasant glimpse of the face, and it was staring and grinning up at the stars. A feeling of dread followed him into the cabin. He filled the stove, and sat down to wait for Father Roland. It was a long wait. He heard Mukoki go away. The mice rustled about him again. An hour had passed when he heard a sound at the door, a scraping sound, like the peculiar drag of claws over wood, and a moment later it was followed by a whine that came to him faintly. He opened the door slowly. Barry stood just outside the threshold. He had given him two fish at noon, so he knew that it was not hunger that had brought the dog to the cabin. Some mysterious instinct had told him that David was alone. He wanted to come in. His yearning gleamed in his eyes as he stood there stiff-legged in the moonlight. David held out a hand on the point of enticing him through the door when he heard the soft crunching of feet in the snow. 
a gray shadow, swift as the wind, Barry disappeared. David scarcely knew when he went. He was looking into the face of Father Roland. He backed into the cabin, without speaking, and the missioner entered. He was smiling. He had, to an extent, recovered himself. He threw off his mittens and rasped his hands over the fire in an effort at cheerfulness. But there was something forced in his manner, something that he was making a terrific fight to keep under. He was like one who had been in great mental stress for many days instead of a single hour. His eyes burned with the smoldering glow of a fever. His shoulders hung loosely as though he had lost the strength to hold them erect. He shivered, David noticed, even as he rubbed his hands and smiled. Curious how this has affected me, David, he said apologetically. It is incredible, this weakness of mine. I have seen death many scores of times, and yet I could not go and look on his face again. Incredible. Yet it is so. I am anxious to get away. Mukoki will soon be coming with the dogs. A devil, Mukoki says. Well, perhaps. A strange man at best. We must forget this night. It has been an unpleasant introduction for you into our north. We must forget it. We must forget Tavish. And then, as if he had omitted a fact of some importance, he added, I will kneel at his gravesite before we go. If he had only waited, said David, scarcely knowing what words he was speaking. If he had waited until tomorrow, only, or the next day. Yes, if he had waited. The missioner's eyes narrowed. David heard the click of his jaws as he dropped his head so that his face was hidden. If he had waited, he repeated, after David. If he had only waited. And his hands, spread out fan-like ever the stove, closed slowly and rigidly, as if gripping at the throat of something. I have friends up in that country he came from, David forced himself to say, and I had hoped he would be able to tell me something about them. He must have known them, or heard of them. Undoubtedly, said the missioner, still looking at the top of the stove and unclenching his fingers as slowly as he had drawn them together. But he is dead. There was a note of finality in his voice, a sudden forcefulness of meaning as he raised his head and looked at David. Dead, he repeated, and buried. We are no longer privileged even to guess at what he might have said. As I told you once before, David, I am not a Catholic, nor a Church of England man, nor of any religion that wears a name, and yet I accepted a little of them all into my own creed. A wandering missioner, and I am such a one, must obliterate to an extent his own deep-souled convictions and accept indulgently all articles of Christian faith. And there is one law, above all others, 
which he must hold inviolate. He must not pry into the past of the dead, nor speak aloud the secrets of the living. Let us forget Tavish. His words sounded a knell in David's heart. If he had hoped that Father Roland would, at the very last, tell him something more about Tavish, that hope was now gone. The missioner spoke in a voice that was almost gentle, and he came to David and put a hand on his shoulder, as a father might have done with a son. He had placed himself, in this moment, beyond the reach of any questions that might have been in David's mind. With eyes and touch that spoke a deep affection, he had raised a barrier between them as inviolable as that law of his creed which he had just mentioned. And with it had come a better understanding. David was glad that Mukoki's voice and the commotion of the dogs came to interrupt them. They gathered up hurriedly a few things they had brought into the cabin and carried them to the sledge. David did not enter the cabin again, but stood with the dogs in the edge of the timber, while Father Roland made his promised visit to the grave. Mukoki followed him, and as the missioner stood over the dark mound in the snow, David saw the Cree slip like a shadow into the cabin, where a light was still burning. Then he noticed that Father Roland was kneeling, and a moment later the Indian came out of the cabin quietly, and without looking back joined him near the dogs. They waited. Over Tavish's grave, Father Roland's lips were moving, and out of his mouth strange words came in a low and unemotional voice that was not much above a whisper. And I thank God that you did not tell me before you died, Tavish, he was saying. I thank God for that, for if you had, I would have killed you. As he came back to them, David noticed a flickering of light in the cabin, as though the lamp was sputtering and about to go out. They put on their snowshoes, and with Mukoki breaking the trail, buried themselves in the moonlit forest. Half an hour later, they halted on the summit of a second ridge. The Cree looked back and pointed with an exultant cry. Where the cabin had been, a red flare of flame was rising above the treetops. David understood what the flickering light in the cabin had meant. Mukoki had spilled Tavish's kerosene and had touched a match to it so that the little devils might follow their master into the black abyss. He almost fancied he could hear the agonized squeaking of Tavish's pets. Straight northward, through the white moonlight of that night, Mukoki broke their trail, traveling at times so swiftly that the missioner commanded him to slacken his pace on David's account. Even David did not think of stopping. He had no desire to stop so long as their way was lighted ahead of them. It seemed to him that the world was becoming brighter and the forest gloom less cheerless as they dropped that evil valley of Tavish's farther and farther behind them. Then the moon began to fade, like a great lamp that had burned itself out of oil, and darkness swept over them like huge wings. It was two o'clock when they camped and built a fire.
So, day after day, they continued into the north. At the end of his tenth day, the sixth after leaving Tavish's, David felt that he was no longer a stranger in the country of the big snows. He did not say as much to Father Roland, for to express such a thought to one who had lived there all his life seemed to him to be little less than a bit of sheer imbecility. Ten days! That was all, and yet they might have been ten months, or as many years for that matter, so completely had they changed him. He was not thinking of himself physically. Not a day passed that Father Roland did not point out some fresh triumph for him there. His limbs were nearly as tireless as the missioners. He knew that he was growing heavier, and he could at last chop through a tree without winding himself. These things his companions could see. His appetite was voracious. His eyes were keen and his hands steady, so that he was doing splendid practice shooting with both rifle and pistol, and each day when the missioner insisted on their bout with the gloves he found it more and more difficult to hold himself in. Not so hard, David, Father Roland frequently cautioned him, and in place of the first joyous grin there was always a look of settled anxiety in Mukoki's face as he watched them. The more David pummeled him, the greater was the little missioner's triumph. I told you what this north country could do for you, was his exultant slogan. I told you. Once David was on the point of telling him that he could see only the tenth part of what it had done for him, but the old shame held his tongue. He did not want to bring up the old story. The fact that it had existed and had written itself out in human passion, remained with him still as a personal and humiliating degradation. It was like a scar on his own body, a repulsive sore which he wished to keep out of sight, even from the eyes of the man who had been his salvation. The growth of this revulsion within him had kept pace with his physical improvement, and if at the end of these ten days Father Roland had spoken of the woman who had betrayed him, the woman who had been his wife, he would have turned the key on that subject as decisively as the missioner had banned further conversation or conjecture about Tavish. This was, perhaps, the best evidence that he had cut out the cancer in his breast. The golden goddess, whom he had thought an angel, he now saw stripped of her glory. If she had repented in that room, if she had betrayed fear even, a single emotion of mental agony, he would not have felt so sure of himself. But she had laughed. She was, like Tavish, a devil. He thought of her beauty, now as that of a poisonous flower. He had unwittingly touched such a flower once, a flower of wonderful waxen loveliness, and it had produced a pustular eruption on his hand. She was like that, poisonous, treacherous, a creature with as little soul as that flower had perfume. It was this change in him, in his conception and his memory of her, that he would have given much to have Father Roland understand.
During this period of his own transformation, he had observed a curious change in Father Roland. At times, after leaving Tavish's cabin, the little missioner seemed struggling under the weight of a deep and gloomy oppression. Once or twice, in the firelight, it had looked almost like sickness, and David had seen his face grow wan and old. Always after these fits of dejection, there would follow a reaction. And for hours the missioner would be like one upon whom had fallen a new and sudden happiness. As day added itself to day, and night to night, the periods of depression became shorter and less frequent, and at last Father Roland emerged from them altogether, as though he had been fighting a great fight, and had won. There was a new luster in his eyes. David wondered whether it was a trick of his imagination that made him think the lines in the missioner's face were not so deep, that he stood straighter, and that there was, at times, a deep and vibrant note in his voice which he had not heard before. During these days, David was trying hard to make himself believe that no reasonable combination of circumstances could have associated Tavish with the girl whose picture he kept in the breast pocket of his coat. He succeeded, in a way. He tried also to dissociate the face in the picture from a living personality. In this he failed. More and more the picture became a living thing for him. He found a great comfort in his possession of it. He made up his mind that he would keep it, and that its sweet face, always on the point of speaking to him, should go with him wherever he went, guiding him in a way, a companion. He found that, in hours when the darkness and the emptiness of his life oppressed him, the face gave him new hope, and he saw new light. He ceased to think of it as a picture, and one night, speaking half aloud, he called her little sister. She seemed nearer to him after that. Unconsciously, his hand learned the habit of going to his breast pocket when they were traveling, to make sure that she was there. He would have suffered physical torment before he would have confided all this to any living soul, but the secret thought that was growing more and more in his heart he told to Barry. The dog came into their camps now, but not until the missioner and Mukoki had gone to bed. He would cringe down near David's feet, lying there motionless, oblivious of the other dogs, and showing no inclination to disturb them. He was there on the tenth night, looking steadily at David with his two bloodshot eyes, wondering what it was that his master held in his hands. From the lips and eyes of the girl, trembling and aglow in the firelight, David looked at Barry. In the bloodshot eyes he saw the immeasurable faith of an adoring slave. He knew that Barry would never leave him. And the girl, looking at him as steadily as Barry, would never leave him. There was a tremendous thrill in the thought. He leaned over the dog, and with a tremulous stir in his voice, he whispered, Some day, boy, we may go to her. 
Barry shivered with joy. David's voice, whispering to him in that way, was like a caress, and he whined softly as he crept an inch or two near to his master's feet. That night Father Roland was restless. Hours later, when he was lying snug and warm in his own blankets, David heard him get up, and watched him as he scraped together the burned embers of the fire, and added fresh fuel to them. The flap of the tent was back a little, so that he could see plainly. It could not have been later than midnight. The missioner was fully dressed, and as the fire burned brighter, David could see the ruddy glow of his face, and it struck him that it looked singularly boyish in the flame glow. He did not guess what was keeping the missioner awake, until a little later he heard him among the dogs, and his voice came to him, low and exultingly, and as boyish as his face had seemed. We'll be home tomorrow, boys. Home. That word, home, sounded oddly enough to David up here three hundred miles from civilization. He fancied that he heard the dogs shuffling in the snow, and the satisfied rasping of their master's hands. Father Roland did not return into the tent again that night. David fell asleep but was roused for breakfast at three o'clock, and they were away before it was yet light. Through the morning darkness, Mukoki led the way, as unerringly as a fox, for he was now on his own ground. As dawn came, with a promise of sun, David wondered in a whimsical sort of way whether his companions, both dogs and men, were going mad. He had not as yet experienced the joy and excitement of a northern homecoming, nor had he dreamed that it was possible for Mokoki's leathern face to break into wild jubilation. As the first rays of the sun shot over the forests, he began, all at once, to sing in a low chanting voice that grew steadily louder, and as he sang he kept time in a curious way with his hands. He did not slacken his pace, but kept steadily on, and suddenly the little missioner joined him in a voice that rang out like the blare of a bugle. To David's ears there was something familiar in that song, as it rose wildly on the morning air. Pasho ke non zekun, taba ninga, anogo sa no gok, na kwashka mon, na gok ninku, Pasho ke non zekun, pasho ke non zekun, taba ningo. What is it? he asked, when Father Roland dropped back to his side, smiling and breathing deeply. It sounds like a Chinese puzzle, and yet. The missioner laughed. Mukoki had ended a second verse. Twenty years ago, when I first knew Mukoki, he would chant nothing but Indian legends to the beat of a tom-tom, he explained. Since I've had him, he has developed a passion for mission singing, for hymns, that was nearer, my God, to thee. Mukoki, gathering wind, had begun again. That's his favorite, explained Father Roland. At times, when he is alone, 
he will chant it by the hour. He is delighted when I join in with him. It's from Greenland's icy mountains. At first, David had felt a slight desire to laugh at the Cree's odd chanting and the grotesque movement of his hands and arms, like two pump handles in slow and rhythmic action as he kept time. This desire did not come to him again during the day. He remembered, long years ago, hearing his mother sing those old hymns in his boyhood home. He could see the ancient melodeon with its yellow keys and the ragged hymn-book his mother had prized next to her Bible. And he could hear again her sweet, quavering voice sing those gentle songs, like unforgettable benedictions. The same songs that Mukoki and the missioner were chanting now, up here, a thousand miles away. That was a long time ago, a very, very long time ago. She had been dead many years. And he, he must be growing old, thirty-eight. And he was nine then, with slender legs and tousled hair, and a worship for his mother that had mellowed and perhaps saddened his whole life. It was a long time ago. But the songs had lived. They must be known over the whole world, those songs his mother used to sing. He began to join in where he could catch the tunes, and his voice sounded strange and broken and unreal to him, for it was a long time since those boyhood days, and he had not lifted it in song since he had sung them. With his mother. It was growing dusk when they came to the missioner's home on Gauze Lake. It was almost a chateau, David thought, when he first saw it, built of massive logs. Beyond it, there was a smaller building, also built of logs, and toward this, Mukoki hurried with the dogs and the sledge. He heard the welcoming cries of Mukoki's family, and the excited barking of dogs as he followed Father Roland into the big cabin. It was lighted and warm. Evidently, someone had been keeping it in readiness for the missioner's return. They entered into a big room, and in his first glance, David saw three doors leading from this room. Two of them were open. The third was closed. There was something very like a sobbing note in Father Roland's voice as he opened his arms wide and said to David, Home, David. You're home. He took off his things, his coat, his cap, his moccasins, and his thick German socks, and when he again spoke to David and looked at him, his eyes had in them a mysterious light, and his words trembled with suppressed emotion. You will forgive me, David. You will forgive me a weakness, and make yourself at home. Will I go alone for a few minutes into that room? He rose from the chair on which he had seated himself to strip off his moccasins and face the closed door. 
He seemed to forget David after he had spoken. He went to it slowly, his breath coming quickly, and when he reached it, he drew a heavy key from his pocket. He unlocked the door. It was dark inside, and David could see nothing as the missioner entered. For many minutes, he sat where Father Roland had left him, staring at the door. A strange man, a very strange man, Thoreau had said. Yes, a strange man. What was in that room? Why its unaccountable silence? Once he thought he heard a low cry. For ten minutes he sat, waiting. And then, very faintly at first, almost like a wind soughing through distant treetops and coming ever nearer, nearer, and more distinct, there came to him from beyond the closed door the gentle, subdued music of a violin. End of chapter 13